singing and great worship. And we want to welcome our, uh, I love when they make this so high, they think I'm Wilt Chamberlain. All right, come on, bring that down a little bit. There we go. I, I want to wish a happy Mother's Day to uh, all of you. And obviously as our Northridge campus joins us now and Cactus and our chapel, and then those of you online, it's a, it's a great day. Every day is a great day to worship God. Uh, this week, we uh, are in the tail end of our series called When Jesus Appears. We have this week and then next week, and we're going to be actually finishing out the Gospel of John, which I've been doing an on and off preaching out of it for six years now. And uh, yeah, and, and the staff in our retreat last June, uh, I said, hey, anything we need to make sure we do this next year, they in unison said, yeah, finish the Gospel of John. So we're going to be doing that next weekend. And then we're going to take a, a six-week series to lead us into summer that I, I believe will be incredibly meaningful. I, I think God could use this in a profound way. We've called it The Battle Within, The Battle Within. And it's a, it's a perfect series to respond to this year-plus-long pandemic that we are hopefully coming out of where a lot of people have been isolated, a lot of people are hurting, and you have friends and family, maybe even you're there, and we're gonna take a look at what the Bible says about some topics that we all battle with within, things like disappointment, fear, shame, uh, anger, depression. Uh, believe it or not, many of you know this, the Bible does say a lot of things on those topics. And so we're gonna take a look at what the Bible says and then we're gonna cap off the series at the end of June with a one-week look at what I've simply called victory. What does the Bible say about victory and what does victory look like when it comes to the battle within? So here's my point in telling you that is that if you have uh, a family member or a friend, this would be a great series. It starts in two weeks to invite someone to, whether online or at any of our campuses, it'd be a great time to, to reach out because people are ripe. They are, are looking for help uh, after the year that they've been through, and, and our church is poised, all of us are, to provide some of that help, and I believe the Lord will use this series. So that's where we're going today. We've got a lot of work to do and, and an amazing story as we continue to wrap up the Gospel of John. Why don't you guys bow with me, and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gathered church here and at Cactus, Cactus Northridge Chapel and online and how, Lord, we can now, as one congregation, as, as one people of God, open up your book and allow you to speak to us. Lord, it's arguable that the story we're looking at today is one of the most powerful and profound stories in all of Scripture. And so, Lord, I pray that as we do justice to it by understanding it rightly and in context, that, Lord, we might apply it to our lives and learn how each of us can respond to failure in such a way that makes us more usable in your hands. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So I was uh, halfway through college back in the mid-1980s, and I found myself back home for the summer, as many college students do, in my hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, where I grew up. And I needed a job that summer to make money for the upcoming year, and so I applied at the village of Chagrin Falls office for a, a, a spot on their street crew. They only had a couple of spots every summer open for summer help on the street crew, and I got it. 
and I was hired by the village for that summer. Now, that's the good news. The, the bad news is there were two types of job that they hired summer help for. The cherry job was to be on the actual street crew. You got to drive big trucks and empty garbage cans and pick up roadkill, which back then was, sounded really cool, and, and, and you got to fill potholes and things like that. The less desirable job for summer help was what we called cemetery duty. Uh, Chagrin Falls has a very large 25-acre cemetery called Evergreen Cemetery, and there are two full-time workers there, and then they'd hire two more summer help in the summer to help mow the grass because it's 25 acres. <laughs> and what would happen is, is that the two full-time guys would take the spots on the riding tractors and, and, and mow uh, you know, the grass, and, and then the summer help would follow behind them with weed whackers. And literally, from Monday through Friday, the only job I had was to weed whack around the gravestones and, and to get the grass there. It was a very monotonous, very boring job, but I was thankful that I had a job. At the end of the summer, as things were winding down, I said to Art, who was the head of the crew, an older guy, I said, hey, Art, do we ever get to ride the tractors? And of course, I thought for sure he'd say uh, no, but he didn't. He said, well, we, we do want to give you guys a, a good experience here and, and know what we do. So in the last couple of weeks, Charlie and I are going to let you and the other guy uh, take lead on the tractors and we'll do the weed whacking. And I thought, sweet. And so the day came that I got to ride the long tractor. And of course, I knew how to do this. I grew up in a small town. And, and as I got on it, Art said to me, he said, there's only one rule. That hill that is, the, is at the south end of the cemetery when you come in is so steep. If you've noticed, we always cut it by hand. Do not try to go up that hill on the tractor because it can't be done. Now, he should not have said that to me. <laughs> Because one, I'd never tell a college student who, you know, they think they know everything, it can't be done. And two, you never tell them don't do anything. So the first thing I did when I got on that tractor is I made a beeline for that hill. And I started to go up this hill and I got about two thirds up into a very, very steep hill and the tractor basically stalled out. And my first thought was, darn, Art was right. This can't get up the hill. And then I got in real trouble because the tractor, even though it had stalled by then, was starting to go back down. The, the tires couldn't even hold it on the hill. And so being a very intelligent college kid, sarcasm, I, I, I took my foot off the brake and figured I'd coast down the hill. And it started to pick up way too much speed. So again, using my intelligence, I decided to turn the wheel. Yeah, right? To come out of that, that thing. And as you guessed it, I turned it to the right. This tractor whips around and I felt it going over. And again, the, the only blessing was I was young and agile at that time. And so I jumped off the tractor as it was starting to go over. Didn't even fall down. Landed right on my feet. I was so proud of myself. And I looked back as the tractor was rolling down the hill. My very first thought was, how do I get out of this? I mean, how do you, what excuse could I give to Art for this? And there was none. So I came clean, I told him what I did, and of course he was angry, he was upset. They had to tell Bill, the head of the old street crew, we had to buy a new tractor. And they didn't want me on a tractor again for the next two weeks, as you can imagine. So I'm back on the weed whacker, and, and, and uh, about the last day or two, uh, the new tractor came in, and of course I'm standing over it, admiring it, and how this thing's nice. And Art says, don't even think about it, you're not getting on that tractor. I kid you not, a day later, he was 
cleaning up for the day and the tractor was maybe 10, 15 feet from the shed. And he said, hey, Jamie, I don't think you can mess up this up. Just get on the tractor and put it in the shed. And he walked away. I got on the tractor and I said to the next guy, I said, this thing is sweet. I said, I bet you I could put a, pull a wheelie on this tractor. <laughs> he said, no, you can't pull a wheelie on this tractor. He said, the, the engine's in the front and even though it's rear wheel drive, there's no way you can pull a wheelie. I said, watch me. So I, I revved the tractor up as high as I could and, and I popped the clutch. For those of you gearheads, it wasn't hydrostatic. It had an actual clutch. I popped the clutch and sure enough, I popped the front end right off the ground. And my friend looked at me and said, that was so cool, do it again. We were idiots. And so I revved it up again and, and I popped it, true story. And I heard this loud bang and I blew the rear differential right out of its casing. All the gears, the oil just blew right out the back. And again, my first thought was, how do I get out of this? How do I explain to Art that I just, and so I, I came clean. I've told you guys before, even before I became a Christian, I, my dad just beat into me. Just be honest about all your mess ups because I had a lot of them. So I told Art what I did. And again, they were furious with me. At the end of the summer, I had my review and I was not looking forward to this. <laughs> the head of the street department was a guy named Bill. And I come from a really small town. Everybody knows everybody. And so Bill, he knew my dad and we all knew everybody. He sat down with me. I went to school with his kids. And he said, Jamie, we gotta, we gotta try to make sense of what happened. He said, the way the review works is there's all these categories and it's pass or fail. And he said, you're actually gonna feel pretty good because when it came to attitude and showing up on time and work ethic, he said, you're gonna get a pass on all this. But I kid you not, you can't make this stuff up. There was this one category called equipment usage. And we got to that and Bill looked at me and said, look, I love you, I love your old man, but I gotta fail you on this. He said, you cost the city two tractors and there's no way that I can put past. Nobody would believe it, so you get a big F on that one. And then he said very kindly, he said, and, and I would suggest that next summer you find another job than working for the village of Chagrin Falls. And I heard him loud and clear. I became a waiter the next two summers to get through college and I'm a people person, so that was a much better fit for me anyways. But why do I tell you that story? Here's why. I want you to imagine for just a moment that I decided to not take Bill's advice and return the next summer and applied for a position with the village and had the gall to even say to Bill, I don't wanna work at that cemetery. I want you to promote me and I wanna be on street crew. I wanna drive the big trucks. I wanna drive the backhoe. I, I wanna drive all that equipment. What do you think Bill would say to me? I think rightly so, he would have said, well, Jamie, I hardly think I can promote you in light of your failure last summer when it came to handling equipment. We just don't do that here. In fact, let me give you a piece of advice, son. Nobody in this world is gonna promote you when you fail. Don't expect that to be the reality. And we would all get it if he said that because we all know that we live in a world where though Though failure is a reality, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, and though failure can be responded to and even learned from, there's lots of books on that, you still don't get promoted in light of failure. I mean, who would ever do something like that? And the answer is, God does. It's true, God does. Here's what you're gonna see today, going against the grain of this world, God, in his infinite and amazing grace, 
takes people, you and me, right in the midst of our failure, and he promotes us. And let's be clear, he doesn't promote us because of our failures. That wouldn't make any sense at all. What God does is promote people in light of their failures, in tandem with their failures, if and when they respond to their failures in a certain way. But he promotes them nonetheless. And it's all over the Bible. You can't escape it. God takes a Moses, who was a murderer, by the way, and promotes him to lead Israel out of the promised land. And then he takes a David, who was a murderer and an adulterer, and he promotes David to be an even better king over Israel. And then he takes Paul the apostle, who was a a, a persecutor of Christians, even stood over the stoning of Stephen, and he promotes him to be an apostle and an evangelist. And as I already said, though there's something that God is going to look for in failure-ridden people that, that he will, that will make him respond to us to promote us, promote us, he does. And what you and I are going to see today is how this works and why it works this way. And we're going to do so through looking at a, another failure-laden person in the Bible who got promoted, that of Peter. So we're in the tail end of a series here at SBC, as you guys know, called When Jesus Appears. We're looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, that little sliver of time, that narrow window where Jesus has risen from the dead, but not yet ascended into heaven. It's about a 40-day period of time, so call it just less than six weeks or so. And today, we get to one of the most potent and powerful appearances of them all, when Jesus appears to Peter and does something with him, now don't miss this, that's going to give every one of us who have ever failed God, and most of us have, immense and abiding hope. Now, the quick backstory to this scene that we're going to look at today is that before Jesus had been crucified, many of us know this story, as he was experiencing his arrest and trial, Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest followers, denies Jesus. He literally turns his back on him and denies ever knowing him or have any association with him. And the story is frustrating when you read it, at least it is for me. And I'll tell you why. Because when you read the story of Peter's denial, you read that way before the denial, Peter said, though others are going to abandon you, I'm never going to do it, Jesus. I am so sold out for you, I will never abandon you. You got me always and all all of me. And of course, right at that moment, Jesus looks at him and says, well, that's that's technically not true, Peter. (laughs) And there's going to come a day where you are going to abandon me and deny me. In fact, before the rooster crows, when I'm arrested, you are going to deny me three times. And again, when you're reading the story, you're thinking to yourself, well, Peter, this is not difficult. You've been told it's going to happen. I mean, if somebody told you, if Jesus told you that tomorrow at work, you are going to tell a lie Wouldn't you, with everything in you, say, well, I'm not going to work? (laughs) Or if I do go to work, I'm not saying a word. Because if I don't go to work or if I don't say anything, then I can't lie. That's all Peter would have had to do, is to say, I'm just going to avoid the whole situation. But yet, Jesus is right. He's the son of God, for crying out loud. Of course, he's right. 
And, and, and Peter denies Jesus three times. And when that happens, folks, Peter has now spiraled down in shame and remorse. He is beat up and bruised. He is seeing his entire relationship with Jesus as a complete failure, which in many ways it kind of was. And as Jesus now meets with seven of the disciples in this, this post-resurrection appearance along the Sea of Galilee, where, as we saw last week, he's serving them breakfast, he now turns to Peter. And look at what happens next. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, <coughs> you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, one of the first things that you need to see about this scene here, and it's actually a very, very beautiful thing, is that Jesus asked Peter a question, the same question, three times over, right? And why did he do that? To match his three times of denying him. In other words, what, what Jesus is doing with Peter here is saying, I know you feel a lot of shame over denying me, not once, not twice, but three times. So to help restore you, we're going to go this three times over. So it's a very beautiful thing that Jesus is doing here. And the question becomes, well, what is Jesus after in all of this? And there's two things. First, Jesus wants to hear Peter say, now don't miss this that he is broken over what he has done. And the test for this brokenness is that Peter is willing and wanting to love Jesus more than anything else this side of heaven. As C.S. Lewis would say, first place status. That's what Jesus is after. That Peter had gotten to the end of his human limitations through his failure and was now ready to love Jesus more than anything else. So it's brokenness evidenced by first place status love that Jesus is looking for in Peter. And the reason that we know that this is true, and I put it here in yellow, is because of the first way that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me, which is different than the other two ways. He asks in the first way, he says, do you love me more than these? commentators, Bible experts are kind of funny. They really drill down on the text. Most of them spend an immense amount of time asking the question, what does he mean more than these? Because it's not clear. Like more than what? And some say, well, Jesus means more than the other disciples love Jesus. Some say, no, no, it means more than Peter would love other people, including the disciples around him. And then others say, no, no, you got it all wrong. It means more than the fish and the boat, all Peter's things that they just got out of. And again, I'm reading all this and my head is swimming and I'm thinking, well, one, it's not clear. Two, does it really matter? I mean, I think you and I both agree. What, what, what Jesus means here to Peter is, do you love me more than anything else? No matter what these might refer to, we don't completely know, but it probably means, do you love me more than them? Do you love me more than they do? Do you love me more than your stuff? He's saying, do you love me, Peter, more than anything else in all of creation? Have you gotten to the point in your failure that you realize that I'm all you really got? 
Are you willing to love me above all, even your sin? So three questions, all the same question, to match the threefold denial, all focusing on brokenness over failure leading to an undying love above all else. And once Peter affirms this brokenness, evidenced by first place status love, Jesus now moves to the second thing that he's after with Peter, and this is super rich. And that is a full restoration of Peter, complete with an unanticipated promotion, right on the heels of his failure, and it's a promotion to a new level of discipleship never before seen in the New Testament by a human being up to this point. You're saying, where did you get all that? I'm glad you asked. I want you to look up here on the screen. And, and, and I pointed out here that, that Jesus asked three questions, you know, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And, and notice the three responses that Jesus gives to Peter when he responds, yes, I love you. He says first, tend my lambs. And then he says, shepherd my sheep. And then he says, tend my sheep. One of the things I love about the New American Standard Bible, the translation I use, is that it, it, it's harder to read because it tends to be kind of wooden, but it's very technically correct. And, and so when you study the Greek, as, as I do in preparation for my sermons, I, I found that the NAS, NASB actually translates these words into English really well because it is the Greek word for lamb here, but the Greek word for sheep here, but I think we can all agree it's very similar animals. <laughs> And then when he says, tend my sheep, and then tend my sheep in the first and third, it's a word that simply means to take sheep out to pasture. It's a very simple word that simply means take them from here to here. But watch this. When Jesus uses the word shepherd my sheep, that word becomes a game changer here. That word shepherd is used in the New Testament about 11 times. It's a fascinating, fascinating word here in my study notes. And, and the word literally means to lead, feed, care for the flock in, in all of its totality. So take somebody from a little, little lamb until you finally put them in the ground. You're in charge of this flock. And watch this. This word is primarily used, as you would imagine, of Jesus and us. So in Matthew 2, when it first appears, it's referring to Jesus as one, and I quote, who is a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then this word appears in the book of Revelation talking about how as we enter into eternity, Jesus will be our ultimate and final shepherd throughout all of eternity. It's a beautiful word. It's a word of leadership and control. That's Jesus in our lives. But right in the middle of the New Testament, toward the end of the Gospels, this word appears for the first time in the New Testament in light of a human being. And it's here with Peter. With Peter, when Jesus says to Peter, I want you to shepherd my sheep, this is the word that's never been used of anybody but Jesus. And now Jesus is handing it off to Peter. And he's essentially saying, under the great shepherd, which is me, as an under shepherd, I want you now to have a leadership role in people's lives, not of authority and control, but one in which you guide them to still waters, one in which you help them, based on their failures, connect more meaningfully with me. And this word, guides, would become so powerful that it would be used two other times in the New Testament, you're going to love this, to refer to elders, 
the highest spiritual leadership office in the church. It says in Acts 20 that the elders are, are, are overseers to shepherd the church of God. And then Peter will use this word to say to his fellow elders, shepherd the church of God, not for compulsion or sordid gain, but for eagerness and using your will under God. So don't miss what is happening here. This is extremely, extremely profound. Jesus, on the heels of Peter's affirmation of love above all else, born of brokenness of his failure, Jesus promotes Peter in a way never before seen in the New Testament, not to, not, not to just some paltry little position, but to that of shepherd, a holistic spiritual leader. And this would set the tone for other leaders in the New Testament as well. What does Jesus do when he appears what does he do when he shows up in our lives, which he does all the time? Listen, people. He takes our spiritual failures, even the big and catastrophic ones, and he asks us to get broken over our sin and our failure, and then to affirm our undying love for him. And then he calls us, literally promotes us to a level of spiritual leadership, which we are now ready to do because we've been through the tunnel of chaos, amen? We know what it's like to fail God and survive. We know what it's like to experience his grace and his forgiveness, even not when we weren't saved, but now after we've been saved and we still mess up. And we know his grace like none other. And he says, now help other people understand that aspect of my grace. In fact, as this scene closes out before the very last scene in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives a prophetic statement to Peter that basically says, hey, you know, you had it easy when you were a kid. It's going to be really tough as you get old. That's for another sermon. And then he closes out that time, John does, by saying, and when he, Jesus, had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Whoa. It's like he's saying to Peter, okay, we're finally in that sweet spot. You got to follow me because you're ready. You're ready to do that. Truly, folks, this is one of the most powerful scenes in all of the New Testament, really the whole of the Bible, a promotion like never before seen, certainly something you don't experience in the world, reserved for those who are willing to do real spiritual and relational business with Jesus, and then reaping the rewards of a life of being used by him in ways one can only imagine. Now, to make sure that we understand what Jesus is looking for us, for in us when we fail. <laughs> I wanna spend a few moments, just a few, I won't bore you with this, I think this is very relevant, uh, focusing on that word that I've been throwing around rather liberally, and that's that word broken or brokenness. Because if you've been listening closely, and some of you are, you notice that I'm using that word very differently than how our world uses it. When our world says that you are broken, basically what they mean is, is that you're mixed, messed up and you better try to fix yourself, right? So if I say my marriage is broken, that means I need to go to a therapist and get it fixed. If I say that my kid is broken, that means I need to get my kid in therapy and get him fixed. I mean, that's the way that we use that word broken. But the Bible uses the concept of brokenness very differently. And I want to show you what I mean so that we all understand why God is looking for brokenness in us in order to use us. Because here's what I can promise you. In light of your spiritual failures, and all of you have them, 
If you somehow don't respond to them with a clear and heartfelt brokenness, then I can promise you there's no chance that you'll connect deeper with Jesus and there's no chance you'll be used by him as he wants to use you. So a lot is hanging on this. So what do we mean by brokenness? In one of Jesus' very first sermons and early on in that sermon, Jesus said this, Matthew 5, verse 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Many of you have read this verse. If you've been around the spiritual block for any length of time, you've read this verse. My question is, do you really know what it means? Let's understand this rightly. The bookends of this passage here, give me another click, are obviously blessed, and then kingdom of heaven, and then something comes in the middle of this. Focusing on the bookends, this is how you need to understand this passage, it's saying that a blessed life, and the word blessing simply means to be made happy, is going to come to someone who does this. And if this person does this, not only will they be blessed, but the result will be that they got a spot in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the phrase kingdom of heaven simply means a robust spiritual life beginning now, taking you all the way into eternity. Anybody want that? I think all of us do. So at this point, you should be like going, oh my gosh, what is in the middle here that can begin with a blessing and then lead me to that sweet spot spiritually? What is it that Jesus is after? Go back one slide. He's after those who are poor in spirit. So everything hinges on what the word, phrase poor in spirit means. The word poor simply means to, to, to want, to have not, to be in need. So if somebody is financially poor, it means they have no money and, and, and that they, they want, they have not, and they, they're in need. But it's not talking about money here. It's talking about those who are poor in spirit. So what does the word spirit mean? Well, spirit with a small s in the Bible simply refers to the internal state or the internal condition of a person. It's your thoughts, your emotions, your will. It's your personhood that makes you, you. And so when you put this together, this phrase poor in spirit, now don't miss this, it refers to a person who is sensible or aware of their chronic, messed up, spiritual, sinful condition. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It refers to an individual who is aware of his or her own fallen state, aware of their poverty, aware of their failures. As one commentator on this verse describes, and I'm not reading anything into it, this is a direct quote. He says, this is a person who is broken, who, who, who feels that the dust is his or her right place. Another commentator says this. He says, I hold them to be poor in spirit who are broken in will. See where I'm getting the use of this word? So you should be starting to see that what Jesus is talking about here, now this is really important, is not just a person who's hurting, not just a person who's wounded. Everybody's that in a fallen world, right? I mean, Howard Stern is that. Mick Jagger is that. Miley Cyrus is that. Thank you, you finally looked up. I got your attention. Uh, I, I mean, lots of celebrities, even you or me, are that. There's not one person in this world who's not wounded and hurting this side of heaven. That's not what Jesus means here. 
This is a person who has gone beyond being wounded and hurting and gotten to the root of that, and they are keenly aware and in touch with their sinful, failure-ridden life. And they don't run from it. They don't make excuses for it. They look God in the face and say, this is me. John Gill is one of the better devotional writers, and on Matthew 5, 3, he says this. There are some who are sensible of it, their sinfulness, who see their spiritual poverty and want. They freely acknowledge it, they bewail it, they mourn over it, they're humbled for it, and are broken under a sense of it. And then I love it, he says, they have not denial of it. And what you don't want to miss, gang, is that this is Peter in our story. After his catastrophic spiritual failure, he got broken. And don't miss, he didn't simply cycle downward in shame and just feel bad for a few days, no. He allowed him to feel the weight, he allowed himself to feel the weight of his limitations and sin. And getting to the end of himself, he found Jesus, or better yet, Jesus found him. Because this is how this works. This is brokenness, if you've ever wondered. You may click here. Uh, brokenness is when you get in touch with your limitations. And by the way, that alone is hard enough in America, amen? I mean, we tell our kids, you can do anything. Technically not true. And then we tell them as they are now teenagers, you know, nothing can stop you. Technically not true. And we tell them that, you know, you can make anything else you want to of your life. Technically not true. I mean, we're lying to our kids from cradle till they graduate from college. And again, I, I don't want to be a downer on the kids, but, but we don't really prepare them for the fact that life can be really, really, really hard and that it might actually deal you a deck at times that is beyond you and that you alone can't handle everything on your own, that you alone are gonna need some outside help in your life. But thankfully, there's a name for that outside help and his name is Jesus. And so what brokenness is, is when you finally get to the end of your limitations and you realize you can no longer fix it and you don't wanna run from it, and so you realize the only one that you need is Jesus. And folks, that's exactly where Peter was. Don't miss that. I mean, some of you earlier didn't believe me that Peter actually got broken. You saw the love part, but not the broken part. He could not affirm his love for Jesus in that way unless he had gotten to the end of himself, amen? You don't affirm love like that until you've let go of everything else. My mentor, Larry Crabb, used to always say, in order to attach, you gotta detach. <laughs> so Peter detached from all of his failures and the shame and the, the sin in that moment. He said, I'm giving everything over to Jesus. And it's right at that point where Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes. And then when you say yes three times, he then promotes you to being shepherd. And here's the really cool thing about this. I, I, I know we only have five minutes left for those of you clock watchers, but, but I gotta just say this. This is good stuff. And it's not football season, so chill out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a hard way and an easy way to brokenness. I've taught you this before, but it's true. See, see, here's the deal. The easy way to brokenness, when I say easy, is to stop reading your own press releases, to, to stop drinking the Kool-Aid of what you and other people try to present about who you are, and to realize what God sees, and that is that you're a pathetic, sinful mess. <laughs> and that even though you're successful, and even though you got a nice 401k, and even though everybody else thinks you're great, God still thinks you're great and he loves you, but he knows what you're made of. He, he knows that there, but for the grace of him, you're one step away, you're Nat's eyelash away from being a Peter. 
And you see, I believe that about me. That's the easy way to brokenness. I wake up every day, and it's hard for people to believe, but I, you can ask my wife, Kim, she's here somewhere. I, I don't wake up every day and say, ooh, I'm a big wig pastor of a mega church. Aren't I something? I, can you imagine thinking like that? I don't. I wake up every day, and, and, and true, you can ask God in heaven someday, but this is true. I wake up every day, and as I'm coming out of my haze, I think to myself, thank you for saving my pathetic soul. Thank you that 40 years ago, you saw a snot-nosed kid who you knew would let you down. You decided to save him. And here I stand at the age of 57, still got breath in my lungs, and I can serve you only because you saved me. And even in the midst of my utter sinfulness still, you've forgiven me and you decide to use me. That's the way I think about my life. And so I do see myself as living a life of brokenness in, in a healthy way, but it's a brokenness that yields to Jesus. You're saying, what's the hard way? <laughs> well, that's the easy way to brokenness. Here's the hard way. And this is, this is how good God is. For those of you who decide not to choose that kind of humility, for those of you who choose to rebuff what we're talking about here today, if you are Jesus's, if you've accepted him, he loves you, then he's gonna do whatever is needed done to break you. And it's not because he's mad at you or wants to get back at you. It's because he loves you. Imagine if you took your little one, if you're a grandparent or a parent to the Grand Canyon, and, uh, and, and the little one was so excited to see the Grand Canyon, and this little three-year-old starts running to the edge of the Grand Canyon. And your heart's beating a thousand times a minute because you realize that that kid's running so fast, he has no idea what railings are about, and there isn't a railing there. If they can, they can slip right through it, and that kid's gonna go over the edge. And you yell, stop! And the kid doesn't stop because our kids don't listen to us anymore today, right? And so what would you do? You'd do anything you can. You would run after that kid. You would do a diving tackle. You would grab that kid by the ankles from going over the edge of the Grand Canyon. And that kid would probably be hurt scraped up, bruised, be screaming and crying and look back at you and say, why did you do that? You must hate me. You'd say, no, it's not because I hate you. It's because I love you <laughs> that I tackled you to get you from going off the deep end. See, God's the same way. Some of us don't hear him say, stop. <laughs> Some of us aren't listening to him, even as beloved followers of him. He's gonna do whatever he can to get your attention. That's the hard way to brokenness. I can tell you story after story after story. People come in to me and say, why is this happening? Why is that happening? I say, well, let me tell you. You're not gonna like it, but I can tell you exactly why it's happening. And, and I hope God's got your attention now. See, I've always said to God, and you gotta laugh at this. I, I always wake up and say to God, okay, God, you don't need to bring bad things into my life because you got my attention now. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to live? Doesn't always work. He still sometimes allows bad things to come into my life and, and sometimes just a fallen world. Sometimes it's because he does want to wake me up to certain things that I'm dense to. But either way, he is bent on helping me get broken before him because he knows that's where I need to be. So I wrap up today by asking you, are you broken? Like Peter, have you gotten to the end of yourself and realized that Jesus is all there is? If you haven't, hang in with me the next couple of weeks because when we start the next series, we're gonna do some things to help you even go the next step with Jesus in this. But for Tay, just ask yourself, audit your life, are you broken? And, and, and many of you will say, I think I am. And that's good. So then the second question I ask you as we wrap up is are you willing to shepherd his sheep? Are you willing to identify those around you, maybe a family member, a friend, a kid, a neighbor who 
has hit really hard times with the Lord. Maybe they don't even know the Lord, but you see just a little bit of openness. <laughs> and Jesus says to you, I want to promote you. Shepherd my sheep. Are you willing to do that? Because a lot depends on this and you got something to offer. Let's pray. Father, we're all going to remember the story I started with about me driving up a hill on a tractor and being an idiot and crashing that thing. And then we might remember the story where I popped the clutch and pulled a wheelie and blew out the back differential. But Lord, what I hope we remember more than anything is that we live in a world that looks at failures like that and says, well, I just got to keep you away from that stuff. Whereas you look at failures like that and even worse and say, how can I make you better? How can I use you? How can I get you to the point where you get the end, to the end of yourself and become usable in my hands? Lord, if I don't miss my guess, all of us relate to this idea in some ways here because we've not escaped the fall. We struggle in our lives. And Lord, we've had failure. Some of us are in the midst of it right now. Lord, more than anything, I pray we just cut through all the red tape and that we'd get to the end of ourselves. We choose to do that. Look you in the face and say, I'm ready. I love you and yield over to you. Do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.